Welcome to another episode of Suffering Saranar. I'm done with exams and we just finished onboarding new staff at work, so everything is super chill right now, alhamdulillah, not to um, jinx anything. Uh, my siblings are going to have a couple weeks off from school as well, so I'm hoping to read some books with them. Um, I also re-downloaded TikTok and had one of my sisters add a one-hour screen time password, so I'm kind of on social media again, except it's a lot more for media consumption rather than creation. Um, before we begin the podcast, I just wanted to let you all know that you can send in a voice message and I can include it in my next episode if you'd like. Um, it can be about any of the previous episodes or a topic you want to request or even a guest you'd like to tell me about, literally like anything. Um, I kind of feel weird being perceived, to be honest, because this podcast is mostly just for me and like close friends and family. So I feel a level of comfort in the fact that strangers listening to this don't really have a way of connecting connecting to me but at the same time I'd like to engage in a meaningful discussion with like anyone who's willing to. Um, so today's topic is language and also a book review of Azadi by Arundhati Roy. I thought this should be something I address because my cover has three languages on it um, and content warning for descriptions of violence, um, lynchings, mobs, guns, assassinations, fascism, uh, we'll be discussing Nazis and the RRS, genocide, so like Bangladesh and the Holocaust, um, and anti-Muslim bigotry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the book and also read parts of it out loud later on in the podcast, inshallah. So I was a linguistics major at one point of my undergraduate career, and I genuinely loved it. I had A's in all my courses, and uh, I still I think I think I still have two of my midterms that I got like perfect on and it it was such a good time genuinely like alhamdulillah and my sisters used to call it English chemistry because you have to draw these trees to make the grammar make sense um, but I was majoring in linguistics so I decided to get back in touch with the languages that I speak and was raised to speak at home and so I started to read and write in Urdu again because I was taught um, as a child. And then I also later read some of Hiranja by Wadish Shah, um, which is a, which is it's written in Punjabi, but in the Shamuki script, um, which is like the Persian Arabic script that's used for Urdu as well. Um, and so on the podcast, the cover art for this podcast, I've written my name in the Persian Arabic script that Urdu is written in. Um, and then I read Tobatek Singh by Manto in Urdu, and I was like, this is super interesting, and I want to read more about. Um, Urdu and Punjabi literature and about like the partition and things like that. Um, unfortunately, not a lot of Punjabi literature is written in the Shamuki script, even though the Gurmukhi script was created later on. And then I'm like, you know what, what if I just learned how to read and write in the Gurmukhi script? So now I have an app where I practice reading and writing the letters and I uh, listen to the alphabet. And then on Spotify, they have this cool thing where you can see the lyrics of the songs you're listening to. So I can identify some small words and letters to Punjabi songs. Um, and so that's also why on the covered art, cover art of the podcast, the the last word, Nal, is in the Gurmukhi script. Um, yes, I'm a Pakistani Punjabi, but borders are fake and language and culture will remain undivided. While we're on the topic of cover art, I've always been obsessed with Patiala Shirwar's kameez and... So this is the first one that I've ever bought and worn and it felt so special to pin the dubaton like that and um, it stayed in place and it was kind of like a hijab style almost for me. 
Um, and, and we were at my cousin's Mandy and the whole time it stayed in place, even while we were doing Bhangra. And to be honest, that day was genuinely so joyful for me, alhamdulillah. Um, and so the orange background is because I love jalebi and, um, orange juice as well. And it's just a color that reminds me to celebrate life and to be free and to be me. Um, so speaking of freedom, uh, let's talk about Arundhati Roy's book, Azadi. Uh, wow, what a segue. Good job, me. Free freedom. Wow, look at me. Um, I'm rocking this podcast thing. Uh, cool. Okay, so back to not being meta. <laughs> um, so before I read this book, I had already established that India is becoming a fascist state. And not just like India, but most of the world in general is sliding towards the right. But this just solidified that India is a fascist state. And so this book is a must read for anyone who wants to know more about Indian politics from a leftist point of view or just wants to understand or begin to question what it means to be free in a world where authoritarianism is on the rise. Um, and just to kind of preface all of this, I am in no way kind of like a Pakistani nationalist that that's kind of going off about like, oh, India is a fascist state. Like, no, that's that's not what this is about. This is genuinely just... A discussion about Indian politics because that's what was discussed in the book. So now for like a lot of un incoherent thoughts. Um, a lot of the things I had like surface level knowledge about, about and she clarified a lot of it for me. And it also feels so unreal to be living in this turmoil. Like all of this is happening right now. And I remember when like social media went crazy when like the internet lockdown happened in Kashmir and and like all things, it just trended and then it died out, you know. Um, and now I try to preserve my sanity by not reading the news or keeping up to date with things. And alhamdulillah, I have the privilege to do that. But it amazes me that people are like, one, spreading and consuming this content so casually. And two, not freaking out or doing anything tangible to try and help. But even then, it's not really like up to us to quote unquote fix things because we can't really do anything. So... Instead of seeing so much happening around the world and feeling helpless, I want to try and cultivate some hope, even if it's just for the sake of my own sanity and survival. It really is a coincidence that I picked this book up because before this I picked up The God of Small Things by the same author. And in Azadi, she actually acknowledges the differences in her writing styles and narrates this incident where... Um, or incident, sorry, when someone asks her to continue writing more fiction and then another person asks her, hey, you should write more nonfiction. And so knowing this, I think I'll give her uh, fiction another go. And um, throughout the book, she also talks about the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Uh, and it's almost like an analysis of the book. So maybe going into it with this prior vision, um, I'll probably enjoy it a little bit more. So about the book, she begins by describing languages that have been divided as Hindu, Hindi and Urdu, but they were actually more similar and um, they were actually known as one language called Hindavi and were written in the Persian Arabic script. But now Hindi is recognized as uh, Devanagri and the script of the Brahmins, which was like pure and protected from the quote unquote polluting influence of like lower castes. Um, but still, they're trying to kill the Urdu language and all other languages as well. But as Arundhati Roy says, their enemies are dead poets who have a habit of refusing to die. Uh, and then she kind of speaks about like the 2002 massacre. Um, Modi became really popular after the massacre in 2002. And when he was elected in 2014, a lot of people were praising him as the new hope. 
Um, and so Urunduti says, many are disillusioned now, but their disillusionment only begins after 2014 because questioning Modi's deeds before that would involve questioning themselves. So Gujarat in 2002 is rapidly being erased from public memory. That should not happen. It deserves a place in history as well as in literature. And then she describes how Anjum, a character in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, ensures this. Another quote that I wanted to read aloud was, she says, The place for literature is built by writers and readers. It's a fragile place in some ways, but an indestructible one. When it's broken, we rebuild it, because we need shelter. I very much like the idea of literature that is needed, literature that provides shelter, shelter of all kinds. Um, and many people were radicalized by her work, fiction and nonfiction, and now her work has become like like a marker or like an indication of whether someone supports the state or not. And like she's so right um, in, in that she says like, you know, literature is a place of shelter and like provides shelters of all, all kinds because I'm reading a book called What Happened to You Right Now. And I feel like I used to read fantasy novels at a younger age as a form of escapism. And then when I stopped reading for like all of high school and then for three years of my undergrad, I think I was seeking that same shelter like place or feeling. And so now I'm devouring books again. And this time I've expanded to consume all types of other genres. And it's honestly really amazing to see what's out there and build like kind of a new shelter in literature. Another quote that I really liked was, The RSS runs a shadow government that functions through tens of thousands of branches and other ideologically affiliated organizations with different names, some of them astonishingly violent, spread across the country. The RSS today has white supremacists and racists from the US and Europe circling around it, writing in praise of Hinduism's age-old practice of caste, which is more accurately known as Brahmanism. And uh, Gandhi was also a supporter of this, by the way. So she continues to talk about Brahmanism and she says, Brahmanism organizes society in a vertical hierarchy based on a supposedly celestially ordained graded scale of purity and pollution, entitlements and duties, and hereditary occupations. For the RSS to portray what is engineering today as an epochal revolution in which Hindus are finally wiping away centuries of oppression at the hands of India's early Muslim rulers is a part of its fake history project. In truth, millions of India's Muslims are the descendants of people who converted to Islam to escape Hinduism's cruel practice of caste. Um, and so because Pakistan and India were separated on the basis of religion, the first part of the definition doesn't really fit with the caste system in Pakistan, but the latter two are bigger parts of the caste system that I'm familiar with. Um, if you have any like literature to recommend to kind of read more about this and the caste system in India and Pakistan, uh, do send in a voice message. I do have um, B.R. Ambedkar's uh, Annihilation of Caste on my to-be-read list. Um, but I am a big mood reader, so when I feel like reading textbook-level books, I'll probably pick it up. Um, but So the project of unseeing is a term coined by Arundhati Roy, which describes when artists and scholars minimize the caste system to, like, a footnote or, like, completely leave it out, like, completely omit it from their work. 
and she calls this fake history. As an example, she talks about the seriously, quote-unquote, falsified mythification of Gandhi and the erasure of Ambedkar. So while we all know about Gandhi, we don't really know about his rival, who's a Dalit man, and challenged Gandhi morally, politically, and intellectually. Then she says, many liberals, including Muslims themselves, have described Muslims as Indians, quote-unquote, by choice and not by chance, suggesting that they chose to stay in India and not to move to Pakistan after the partition in 1947. Many did and many didn't, and for the many, the choice simply didn't exist. But to frame Indian Muslims as a people who are in India, quote-unquote, by chance, draws a dangerous ring, a false bloodline around a whole population, suggesting it has a less elemental relationship with the land, and could just as well live elsewhere. And this plays straight into the binary of the good Muslim, bad Muslims, and could trap a whole population into having to redeem itself with a lifetime of regular flag-waving and constitution reading. It also inadvertently shores up the appalling logic of Hindu nationalists. Muslims have so many homelands, but Hindus only have India. Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India are organically connected socially, culturally, and geographically. Um, and so that part where she says, you know, oh, Muslims have so many homelands, but Hindus only have India, it's quite similar to the creation of Israel as, like, the land for Judaism, you know? Um, and then she says, the danger will come from many directions. The most powerful organization in India, the far-right Hindu nationalist RSS, with more than 600,000 members, including Modi, and many of his ministers, has a trained, quote-unquote, volunteer militia. And this was inspired by Mussolini's black shirts. With each passing day, it tightens its grip on every institution of the Indian state. In truth, it has reached a point when it is more or less the state. So this is when I kind of realized, like, she's right, you know, like, she's so right. Um, and she also says how, you know, the BJP has compared the Muslims of India to the Jews of Germany. Um, and so she continues with that and says the fact that RSS ideologues are very openly worshipful of Hitler and Mussolini and that Hitler has found his way onto the cover of an Indian school textbook about great world leaders alongside Gandhi and Modi. Modi. The division in opinions on the use of the term comes down to whether you believe that fascism became fascism only after a continent was destroyed and millions of people were exterminated in gas chambers, or whether you believe that fascism is an ideology that led to those high crimes, that can lead to those high crimes, and that those who subscribe to it are fascists. And so this is really when my eyes opened up the whole to the whole situation and uh, like, I realized, like, you know, a lot of people do think that, you know, fascism is really just, like, what the Holocaust was. But when, in reality, it's really the ideology that led up to those incidents um, to occur. So this next quote is really just, like, pretty to me. Um, and I really liked the metaphor. So she says, Fake news is the skeletal structure, the scaffolding over which the specious wrath that fuels fascism drapes itself. So take that in, like, wow, you know, so like the media, think of it as kind of like a fishbone, right? And then the meat is literally fascism or like, but, but the way that she says drapes itself is like the skin that is like draped over an animal and like with like a skeletal structure inside. So I think that's, I think it was so beautiful. 
Um, even though we're talking about fascism as a metaphor right now. And then she says, All of this is to say that the foundation of today's fascism, the unacceptable fake history of Hindu nationalism, rests on a deeper foundation of another, apparently more acceptable, more sophisticated set of fake histories that elide the stories of caste, of women, and a range of other genders, and of how those stories intersect below the surface of the grand narrative of class and capital. To challenge fascism means to challenge all of this. A precarious solidarity is evolving between Muslims and Ambedkarites and followers of other anti-caste leaders, as well as a new generation of young leftists. It's still brittle, but it's the only hope we have. The trouble is that this fragile coalition is being slaughtered, even as it is being born. The fake news project, its history department as well as its current affairs desk, has been corporatized, Bollywoodized, televised, Twitterized, weaponized, or WhatsAppized, and is disseminating its product at the speed of light. And I've noticed that leftists in general, like, universally have trouble uniting on one front, and this actually, it, it reminds me of another book that I read. So I read about the Iranian revolution called What I Owe. It's a beautiful exploration of grief, motherhood, and um, displacement. And the main character was taking part in the Marxist revolution. And this was one of her critiques as well. And I think it's like partially due to the fact that like, while leftists have one similar belief, like in general, it's... It's what we want to do that really changes things. Like, for instance, I believe that I'm a communitarian and an anarchist. And y'all might understand that in, like, a completely different way. And I know that as soon as I said anarchist, destruction kind of, like, filled your mind. But I think of anarchy in, like, a very different way. So, yeah, even though, like, Muslim and anti-caste leaders and other young leftists might creating might be, like, creating this coalition, as Arundhati says, it's very fragile. And it doesn't hold against the propaganda that's so well internalized in most of the population in India and as well as the diaspora around the globe and like the general population that's kind of consuming this pop propaganda as well. And then she takes a moment to talk about Kashmir. So she says, particularly about Kashmir, only fiction can be true because the truth cannot be told. In India, it is not possible to speak of Kashmir with any degree of honesty without risking bodily harm. I can do no better than to quote James Baldwin, quote, and they would not believe me precisely because they would know that what I said was true, end quote. Um, and so the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is rooted in the very daunting reality of India and Kashmir, and Arundhati says about the character in the book, especially Anjum, who was born as Aftab, who ends up as the proprietor and manager of the Janath guest house, located in a Muslim graveyard just outside the walls of Old Dili. Anjum softens the borders between men and women, animals and humans, and life and death. I go to her when I need shelter from the tyranny of hard borders in this increasingly hardening world. So even just that beautiful description of the book makes probably you, but very me, very much me, want to read the book. Again, I am a very big mood reader, so inshallah I want to pick it up soon. And then she speaks about this incident that happened in February 2019. 
She says, after a Kashmiri suicide bomber uh, killed 40 Indian security personnel, India launched an airstrike against Pakistan, and Pakistan retaliated. And they became the first two nuclear powers in history to actually launch airstrikes against each other. Um, So I remember when this was happening, and again, I, I was speaking to my dad about it, but I didn't realize the gravity of the situation and that it was literally like the almost beginning of a nuclear war. Um, And I also remember seeing the news about like this captured wing commander and I even had a whole discussion about it with my dad and that's what makes it so hard to believe that these are the things that'll be in history books, what we're living in right now and what we really can't do anything about. But Bollywood is churning out another propaganda-filled movie to further the agenda of Hindu nationalism or, you know, fascism Um, and the movie is going to be released in 2022. But, like, is time even real anymore? 2022 is literally, like, right now, almost. Um, But Imran Khan had released him as a gesture of goodwill and in accordance with the Geneva Convention. And Arundhati writes, Perhaps India can offer the same courtesy to its political prisoners in Kashmir and the rest of the country. Protection of their rights under the Geneva Convention. And, like, facts. Like, reciprocate the act of kindness that you demanded from Pakistan. And I'm not defending Pakistan here. They're also very complicit in the Kashmir conflict. Um, And then I also remember when the whole turmoil happened over Modi saying that like uh, 500 and 1000 rupee notes don't have any value anymore. And it was really stupid and he hadn't really like consulted any of his advisors. And this was the start of the recession in India. But the most important thing that Arundhati notes is that the people never protested. Like there were no riots or outcries. They simply just accepted their new realities. And so Arundhati reveals but demonization, demonetization was never about economics alone. It was a loyalty test, a love exam that the so-called great leader was pulling, putting us through. Would we follow him? Would we always love him no matter what? And we emerged with flying colors. The moment we, as a people, accepted demonetization, we infantilized ourselves and surrendered, surrendered to tin pot authoritarianism. And that was like, whoa, because like, obviously, like I haven't, I've had the perfect privilege of like, you know, not living in an authoritarian regime, but like mind blown. My mind was literally like, wow, I did not think of it that way. Um, And later she discusses the genocide of um, the Bengali people. And she starts with like Pakistani's army attack in 1971 and that's how like Bangladesh was created. And then in 1983, the Nelly massacre occurred, where more than 2,000 Bengal originated Muslim settlers were murdered over six hours. Like six hours. Let that set like 2,000 people. Um, and the Indian government decided that anyone who had entered after midnight on the 24th of March in 1971 would be expelled. So they created a national register of citizens aimed first at Bengal origin settlers. And then they began to check for quote unquote illegal immigrants or so-called infiltrators to declare, to declare them as foreigners. And so Rindati Roy says, how do you translate this in modern terms? If not as the national register of citizens coupled with the Citizenship Amendment Bill. This is the RSS's version of Germany's 1935 Nuremberg Laws, by which German citizens were only those who had been granted citizenship papers, legacy papers, by the government of the Third Reich. 
The amendment against Muslims is the first such amendment. Others will no doubt follow against Christians, Dalits, communists, all enemies of the RSS. Um, and if it wasn't clear to you earlier when I was talking about this, I hope it is crystal clear to you now uh, how fast fascism is moving in such like a um, like a hidden way, a covert way right in front of our eyes across the globe. And then I have a couple more pretty quotes to read out loud. Um, so she says, In our Kashmir, the dead will live forever, and the living are only dead people pretending. Like, wow, subhanAllah. The next one is, You're not destroying us. You are constructing us. It's yourselves that you are destroying. The destruction it has begun. And yes, if in a dream you've eaten a fish, it means you've eaten a fish. Hope lies in texts that can accommodate and keep alive our intricacy, our complexity, and our density against the onslaught of the terrifying, sweeping simplifications of fascism. We keep our complicated world, with all it seems exposed, alive in our writing. I love this woman so much. So, so much. This book is so, so good. Um, and during the pandemic, she wrote this, and I want to read it out loud. Um, it was written in an article, actually. And I was like, yes, the pandemic is a portal. I love you. And then, well, like, look around. It's Nothing's really changed. So she says, Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. SubhanAllah. I, like, when I read that article, I think it was on, like, Gajal magazine or something like that. Um, but it was so beautifully written and it captured my hope and I was like yes oh my god what if like capitalism doesn't exist when like we leave the pandemic and obviously we are still living in this like very bad world um it's just and it's getting worse uh I'm gonna take a little break right here so I hope you enjoyed that short little podcast um this is usually how my reviews are on book goodreads as well uh, just like a jumble of crazy thoughts and a whole bunch of quotes that I have that I really, really loved and learned from. Uh, if you'd like me to do more of these, let me know. If not, I'm still going to continue doing it. I was advised by someone to have longer podcasts, but I think I'll do that on like more like topics that I have to write about. Um, but this book review is more of just like a short exploration of um, Arundhati Roy's work and maybe try to convince you guys to get like reading and maybe then I can have buddy readers in the future and we can read books together and talk about them inshallah. Um, it really opens up a whole new world. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to do was also add music to the end of my podcasts. So this episode I wanted to add a song by Underground Authority. It's in Hindi. Um, so for those of you who don't understand, uh, you can look up the song, I guess. I don't know if there are lyrics because it's kind of like niche, I guess, because it's like a rock um, rock music. But it's really just about like uh, rebelling against, um, yeah, like rebellion against the government and things like that. So Underground Authority, here they are.
पीछे कुर्सियों पे बैठे खेल पैसों का ये खेल फ्रॉड पंती इतने इनकी फिर भी क्यों मिले ना जेल वोट के लिए बजाय जो मंदिरों की घंटी बात टब में डूबे उबरे बुलबुले जो झूठ की पीठ पीछे खींचे धागे चोरे एक से बढ़कर एक जेब कतरे सारे बैंक अकाउंट में करे जो छेद भेड़ियों ने शिक्षा को बनाया काला धंधा फायदा उठाया फैलाया पार्टियों का झंडा समझ लपेट पहने अपने कपड़े जो ये सफेद बने ऐसे कर दे जैसे गरीबों का मसीहा मसीहा देख समझ लपेट इनके हुक्म में बस हम सर रहे बिकाऊ सब है जैसे कानून को है खरीदा खरीदा Okay, say that. 